Chapter 26 of Autobiography of an Actress by Anna Cora Mollett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kelly Taylor. We left New Orleans about the middle of March, 1853, in the queenly Magnolia. The young nephew, Stanislaus, whom I mentioned in the preceding chapter, was again my gallant escort. In four days we reached Memphis. Six years before, I had promised Henry Clay not to pass that city again without appearing there in my professional capacity. I never traveled on the southern portion of the Mississippi River since the spring when we, we spent those pleasant days on board the Alexander Scott. We arrived in Memphis on Sunday morning. The next evening I made my debut in Parthenia. I had been ill during my whole stay in New Orleans and was now making a desperate struggle with indisposition. I found the audience particularly inspiring. The engagement promised to be brilliant in the extreme. As the curtain fell upon each act of Ingomar, I found it more and more difficult to proceed but I knew from experience that a strongly concentrated will could master the infirmities of an exhausted physique. I invoked to my aid all the mental energy that could obey the summons and ended the play successfully. The next night I was announced to appear as Mrs. Holler. If I had been governed by common prudence, I had almost written common sense, I should not have attempted the performance but long habit and the example of others had accustomed me to make light of physical ailments when they interfered with my professional duty. I had seen many an actor walk majestically upon the stage and play a part with thrilling effect, who, the instant he was out the range of the footlights, sank down, unable to speak or to stand from the excess of acute suffering. I have often seen actors fall into long fits of swooning and, on recovering, be forced to return to the stage and continue their embodiments. I remember one occasion in England when an actor, who was personating my father, drew down the displeasure of an audience by his feeble and uncertain delivery of the text. How little they suspected that he was dying at that very moment. Three days afterwards he departed this life. Mrs. Glover's last night in London is an instance of indomitable energy that characterizes the votary of the stage in this con conflict with external circumstances. She rose from an illness which her physician had pronounced fatal to enact Mrs. Malaprop in the comedy of the rivals on the occasion of her farewell of the stage. The instant the performance was over, her temporary strength evaporated. She was incapable of answering the summons of the audience, of crossing the stage before the footlights and courtesying to her acknowledgments. At their clamorous demand to behold her once more, she was placed in an armchair in the center of the stage, surrounded and supported by a galaxy of distinguished performers who had congregated in honor of her farewell. The curtain rose, she feebly bowed her thanks, her adieu, smiled upon the bouquets that fell in a floral deluge around her. The curtain descended upon her last triumph. 
She was taken home and in two days breathed her last. A host of similar instances might be given to illustrate how difficult it is for an actor to admit the possibility of his physical condition interfering with the discharge of his public duty. It was an impression of this kind, deeply stamped upon my mind, that lured me to commit the indiscretion of endeavoring to perform on my second night in Memphis. Mrs. Holler has but few words to speak in the first act and those I managed to utter, and those with difficulty, for a fresh attack of bronchitis was added to incipit malaria. In the second act, I scarcely entered upon the stage before I began to be aware that I had miscalculated my powers. The third time I attempted to speak, I found my voice had entirely departed. Again and again, I tried to force out a sound but my lips opened and closed again noiselessly. Dr. S., who afterwards attended me, used to say that he never witnessed an exhibition at once so comical and so painful, the lips moving without producing the faintest articulation, the look of consternation quickly followed by an expression of resolution not to be vanquished, the impotent battle with the inevitable. But I was conquered. I could not speak, and I could not have maintained an erect position much longer. The considerate manager, Mr. Charles, who occupied the stage with me, instantly apologized to the audience, and the curtain fell. For nine days I remained dangerously ill. Dr. S. advised that I should be removed the instant that I could bear the journey. He gave it as his medical opinion that, although it was hardly possible for me to rally in that atmosphere, I would recover rapidly once I reached the other side of the mountains. We left Memphis on the twelfth day of our sojourn there, and, traveling slowly, arrived at my sister's residence in Philadelphia in ten days more. As Dr. S. predicted, I began to revive as soon as we passed the mountains and was soon convalescent. At this period, Mrs. Warner was about to leave America, where she had encountered a series of most heartbreaking trials. The autumn previous, I had promised her my services for a benefit at any time when she chose to call upon me. I thus hoped to make amends, in a slight degree, for the losses and the discomfitures which had waylaid her whole path in a foreign land. She was now just recovering from a dangerous illness, or rather was supposed to be recovering. Late tidings bring the sad intelligence of her lapse, which is feared to prove fatal. She was to receive a complimentary benefit at the Howard Athenaeum, and requested the fulfillment of my promise. I consented to act Desdemona to her Amelia, and went to Boston for that purpose about the middle of May. On the morning of the benefit, Mrs. Warner was still unable to leave her apartment. The benefit, however, took place, and thronged attendance proved the high estimation in which she was held by an American public. Mrs. M. Jones filled the role of Amelia in Mrs. Warner's stead. I represented Desdemona. Mr. Marshall, Othello. I once more used my voice with great facility, but the exertion consequent even upon so unarduous a performance made me conscious of unusual deficiency of strength and elasticity. I had arranged to make 
an extensive western tour during this summer which was to be my last upon the stage but l'homme promise dieu dispose i had never recovered entirely from my attack in memphis early in june i was again taken seriously ill after six weeks of suffering which surpassed in severity all my previous experiences of what mortality can endure my father insisted that i should be brought to his residence at ravenswood and placed under the care of the celebrated dr m whose eminence as both surgeon and physician has been recognized in both hemispheres and has even rendered him famous on olden classic ground i had lost all power of locomotion and was thoroughly helpless but had made not a few journeys before on temporary beds placed in railway cars and in carriages and was now forced to this sad necessity again i must say that i greatly preferred my seat of hay in the corner of the old ox-cart which jolted us over the frozen wilds of indiana my faithful sister may at whose house in boston i had been residing accompanied me we reached our father's dwelling in safety and i was borne to the sunny white curtained chamber where i am now reclining month after month has glided away the flower-scented summer has buried her perfumes and flown the crimson-fingered autumn has trampled her tinted foliage underfoot and departed winter is beginning to show his hard-featured and frost-bitten face and finds this little chamber still my compulsory abiding place there have been no flower gatherings no garden ramblings for me since june day after day i have looked out with longing eyes upon the gardens beneath my window and watched the flowers that enameled the fair earth one by one pale on their stems wither and disappear the last dahlia has just dropped its head and died there are a cluster of pine trees that look in at one of my windows and i have found daily delight i may say actual comfort in gazing at their emerald beauty i know every branch every little twig almost every little bird which through the summer has sat in the boughs and made vocal air with his matin songs the wind plays through those pine tree branches as on an instrument with a muffled musical sound like that of the human voice called by singers a veiled voice i have never heard wind sighing through any other trees produce the same hushed murmuring melody and what gloriously golden sunsets i have beheld through those pine-tree branches as i lay looking out at the sky what soft moonlit shinings what brilliant starlight gleamings one of my chief amusements is watching the setting sun that at each departure assumes some farewell robe of varied splendor and sometimes i muse upon life's early dawn that broke flooding the horizon with radiance upon the storms that gathered before morning has passed upon clouds that parted at noonday to let through an unlooked-for effluence as i dreamily gaze at the sun going down with mellow glory i think of a sunset of peace that may be given for such a life's closing i lift my eyes and they fall upon the pine trees again but now the rich green of their plumy foliage is taking a rusty hue for winter as he strides on with ice-shod feet has breathed upon them coldly 
the clustering cones that roundly spangled the boughs have ripened, and the wind is shaking them to the ground, like hopes that fall to plant the seeds of new hopes. I shall see the snow enshroud the pine tree branches and still be a prisoner. Yet, even in a sick chamber, the slow movement of life may be calm and glad. Patience may pour upon the spirit her medicinal balm. Hope may sit enthroned in the heart, shining with steadfast luster. Memory, unfolding her tablets, may point to some bright and consoling records. The voices of tenderness may fall in music on the pain-quickened ear. The holy ties of kinship, the adamantine chains of friendship, may be drawn closer than ever. Let my future be cast where it may, I must, perforce, look back with loving remembrance upon the pleasant little chamber beneath my father's roof, where, if I have suffered much, I have rejoiced more. The ten sisters have never again been gathered in the paternal home, but each one not separated by the ocean has come, in turn, to shed her sweet influence around the couch of the invalid, some to spend but days, some weeks, and some months. And the tender second mother has flitted in and out each day, drawing the sunshine after her and performing thoughtful offices of love, and the younger sisters, whose home I now share, have gladdened the room with their blooming presence, their prattling tongues, and the faithful attendant who has journeyed with me by land and by sea has proved as devoted and as patient by the couch of sickness as she was cheerful and intrepid in our far-off wanderings. And last, though ever first, shall I not reverently speak of your precious visits to our cheerful chamber, my father? Shall I say no word of you who, through the varied vicissitudes of my life, sustained and encouraged me in all my strenuous exertions, you who consoled me under all my hard trials, you whose own unconquerable energy has taught me how to battle with life's ills, whose example of smiling fortitude has shown me how to be victorious over inflexible circumstance, whose recognition of divine providence, even in things most minute, has strengthened my faith, whose daily acts have given to your precepts double weight, you who forgot the shortcomings of my wayward girlhood and opened your arms, your heart, to me without breathing one reproach, may I not record those things of you and say that to you I owe the possession of some of those qualities which have rendered your own struggles in life blessed, which have made manifest the softening uses of sorrow? Surely this is a tribute which a child may pay to a father, even in the world's full hearing. I do not attempt to restrain the outgushing of my spirit when I speak to you. My memoirs would neither be truthful nor complete if they contained no chronicle such as I have written above. Two-thirds of those memoirs have been penned in this quiet little chamber I have described, penned during intervals from suffering and a period of slow convalescence. When I fully recover my health, as the distinguished physician mentioned above, 
who has expended his skill upon me for nearly five months, is confident that I shall do, I purpose taking a brief farewell of my profession in some of the principal cities of the Union. I desire to leave that profession as calmly and as deliberately as it was entered, for I shall bid it adieu with those objects, imperiously summoned by which I first bore the name of actress, happily accomplished." I will here answer a question in relation to the stage which I am frequently asked. There are some who may be profited by the reply. Are you fond of the stage? Has been the inquiry put by many lips during the past eight years. There is a species of aristocratic affectation existing amongst the members of the profession, which induces many of them to declare that they detest their own vocation, that they dislike nothing so much as acting, etc. I have heard this assertion again and again from the mouths of the most successful performers, and all affectation seems to me so inconsistent with true talent that I could not but listen in wonder. But, as I have said, to declare that the stage is distasteful is looked upon as a sign of professional aristocracy. My own part, I answer frankly, I have received intense delight from the personation of some characters. The power of swaying the emotion of the crowd is one of the most thrilling sensations that I have ever experienced, yet I have not found in the profession the kind of absorbing fascination which I have often heard described as inseparable from the stage. There are too many incongruous elements mingled with every dramatic triumph for the charm if any, to be complete. Without looking upon the theater as a Caesarian bower, without entertaining a passion for the stage, I have a quiet love for the drama, which, heaven forbid, with my convictions in regard to its use, I should ever shrink from acknowledging. Without some decided attachment for the profession, I cannot conceive how the fatigues, the vexation, the disappointments incident even upon the most successful theatrical career could be supported. Let me here venture to warn any enthusiastic young aspirant against adopting the stage, unless her qualifications, not to use a much abused word, say her mission, seem particularly to fit her for such a vocation, unless she be strongly impelled by the possession of talents which are unquestionable, unless she be enamored of art itself, but that the dangers of the profession are such that they are generally accredited to be, I do not believe. For I have known too many women bred upon the stage, whose lives were so blamelessly exemplary, whose manners so refined, whose intellects so cultivated, that they would adorn any sphere of society. The subject is not one into which I can fully enter, but let me say that the woman who could be dazzled by the adulation bestowed upon her talents as an actress would be dazzled and led astray in the blaze of a ballroom, in the excitement of social intercourse in any situation where those talents could be displayed, in any position where she could hear the false goslings of a flattering tongue. And from these, where will she be shielded except in utter seclusion? But to return to the subject from which I wandered, 
unless the actress in anticipation is willing to encounter disappointment in myriad unlooked-for shapes to study incessantly and find that her closet study is insufficient to endure an amount and kind of fatigue which she never dreamed of before if she feel the grasshopper a burden and the crumpled rose-leaf an inconvenience to her slumber i would bid her shun the stage but if she be prepared to meet petty as well as formidable trials the former are more often difficult to bear than the latter if she be sustained by some high purpose some strong incentive if she act in obedience to the dictates of the strong lawgiver duty then let her enter the profession boldly by gracing help to elevate the stage and add hers to the purifying influences which may dwell within the walls of the theatre as securely as in any other temple of art let her bear in mind that the sometimes degraded name of actress can be dignified in her own person let her feel above all things that the actress must excite reverence as well as admiration the crowd must honor as well as worship they can always be made to do the latter at the feet of genius they can only be compelled to do the former when genius sheds its halo around higher attributes End of chapter 26